0: Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. I hope you're having a great day. I have to say that it's tough to continue to move forward as if life is normal. When really difficult, horrible things are going on in our world. It feels like every week there's a mass shooting. Uh, We are currently recovering from the Las Vegas mass shooting right now. And, you know, there's a distance we can embrace when we're not there and we don't know anyone affected. We can sit here and feel terrible and cry a little and hope that things will change for the better. But I'm just being honest. I'm not sure if they will, as this seems to be our new normal now. I said to Tim, it's just a matter of time until something like this happens close to us and touches us in some bigger way. And uh, you know, I worry about that day. So I've been thinking about how to go on with our lives while so many people are suffering and we feel so helpless sitting on the sidelines. And I realized it just sort of hit me that it's really very simple. We can continue to live our lives in the way that we want to with the values we believe in, or we can sink deeply into a hole of depression and despair. We do have a choice. And I choose positivity. I give myself time to absorb, reflect, grieve, and then I bring positivity to the forefront because it's the only way forward for me. And forward is important to me. And this topic, it's really timely because today's guest, Mark Michael, he dealt with the unimaginable loss of his daughter 13 years ago. And he has found a way to move forward through the grief. We talk about how a parent can survive something as tough as losing a child and find a way to a place of peace and contentment which is where he is. We've all gone through loss in our lives. It really doesn't matter what kind of loss it is. All loss is extremely difficult. You feel like a part of you is gone and you wonder if you'll ever feel complete again. Mark's background as a pastor and youth addictions counselor almost adds a layer of pressure to his recovery process. At least that's my opinion. Today, Mark is the executive director of the Family Christian Development Center, and he's also a high school cross-country coach who's helping kids find their true potential as athletes and people. But one of the most special things he does is to honor his daughter Kelsey's life through supportive organ donation and also through the Thankful 4 F-O-U-R, events on Thanksgiving every year. You'll see a link to this in the show notes because you got to do it. You got to get out there and do it. You can do these virtually, by the way. You see, Kelsey's life may have ended 13 years ago, but approximately 50 people were helped or in some cases saved through the gifts of her organs. All right, everyone, now that you know what's coming, let's bring Mark Michael on the show. All right, Mark, are you ready? I am ready. Great. Well, I am so grateful that you are giving me some time out of your incredibly busy schedule to come on the show today. Um, So tell me, it's what, 9 o'clock Indiana time?
1: Yeah, it's 9 o'clock Indiana time.
0: Wow, you're holding some late hours these days. What were you doing tonight that that was so important?
1: Well, tonight we had the Wakarusa Chamber of Commerce Annual Appreciation Dinner. And uh, my wife, Kathy, and I were, were honored to be a part of that.
0: So it sounds like, um, well, we're going to get into this in a big way, but you do a lot for your community. And one of mm-hmm. the things that I really wanted to start with is to give a shout out to your cross-country girls. You are a cross-country coach, right?
1: I am. I'm the girls cross-country coach for Northwood High School.
0: All right. So uh, freshman through senior year? That's correct. And what is the distance they're running these days?
1: Uh, they're running 5K. All
0: right. So, what do you love most about coaching kids?
1: Um, probably the thing I like the most is uh, the relationship aspect. Uh, it, it's fun to see these girls come in as, as freshmen and kind of wide eyed. And, and, you know, if, they're, if they have some talent, they think they're going to come in and rule the cross country universe in Indiana right away. Uh, and, and then they get their, their eyes open when we really begin training and racing. And, and to watch them grow and develop over four years and, and to see them become strong, independent young women um, and, and to watch how those relationships change among among team members and, and especially how they, they begin to relate to me in different ways. They become more assertive. They become more curious about the training process and, and race tactics and all those kinds of things. But but then I get to share and, and hear stories of other parts of their life. So, um, yeah, the relationship part of coaching is what I really enjoy.
0: I mean, you know, I ran as a kid, too. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, they get there and they have kind of maybe some big egos if they have some talent. And, man, the Midwest, we can spit out some good runners.
1: Yes, we can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know- girl, down the, girl down the road's doing pretty well at Notre Dame these days.
0: Oh, it's amazing. So, do your kids end up teaching you through the process of coaching?
1: Yeah, you know, this is actually my second stint as the coach at Northwood, and I think I've taken a more open-minded approach to listen to them more than than me trying to teach and, and uh, dare I use the word dictate uh, what we're going to do. Um, I listen more about what you know, how they're feeling, how their legs are feeling, their energy levels what their homework load is for a given night, um, you know, what's going on with boyfriends and parents. And uh, I think we've had two of them move during the season this year, move homes, you know, in, in, in good ways. They're they're, they're doing good. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think I'm learning as much from them, hopefully as much from them as they're learning from me.
0: You know, that's really interesting because, uh, you know, I do, of all the coaching-type influences I had when I was younger, if you include teachers and coaches, it's the coaches that I remember most, but I don't remember them taking this more, I would call it a holistic approach like you have, like maybe uh-huh. they did and maybe they knew what was going on in my life, but I think that's really unique.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Erica, who's our number one runner. You know, when, when I, I started coaching her as a sophomore, well, freshman in track, sophomore in cross country. And, and she's pretty strong-headed. You know, she's, one of the, she's she's an elite runner. She was third in the state in the 800 last spring. And um, this year, if you know, before, if she had something going on and didn't understand what we are doing in training, you know, two, three years ago, it'd be, why are we doing this? I don't want to do that. You know, I'd, I'd get a lot of uh, uh, talk from her in front of the crowd, in front of the group. And we were at a big meet, uh state preview meet a few weeks ago, and I was pretty nervous about how they were going to perform. And I'm pacing, I'm doing my usual pre-meet rituals, and, and she's like, Coach, can you come here for a second? I go, yeah, what's up, Arthur? She can you like go take a walk or chill out or something? You're really starting to stress me out. <laughs> and so for her to be, be that assertive with me was was, was a great uh, uh, moment, I think, in our, our relationship.
0: Wait, she said that
1: to you? <laughs> She said that to me. Yeah, can you can you just kind of relax? You're starting to stress me out.
0: Oh my gosh! But you know what? The thing is, you've given her the confidence. It's yeah. not a lack of respect. It's actually it's a huge amount of respect that's allowing her to do this.
1: After after the track season, the success she had uh, last spring. You know, we we sat down. We had our little debriefing meeting of the season and the, and the state meet. And we both talked about how the level of trust has grown over the the two, three years that we've worked together Um, to the point where she, you know, if I say this is what we need to do in training, she just goes, okay, let's do it. Um, Where before she would ask a lot of questions and it took her and I working through, she wasn't questioning, do we have to do this? She was questioning why? Help me understand the science behind it. Uh, and, And so that's, that's been a great process for both of us.
0: Well, and you know, a lot of people listening are runners and athletes and we're going after goals and it's really, really hard to trust in the process, especially when you don't say you don't feel great on a certain day or you have a bad result mid season, you know, it's hard to maintain that perspective. And so trust does end up being the key. But Mm -hmm. you you usually have to gain that through at least one season or two, a cycle or two, of understanding that if you just trust in the process and trust in the person who's guiding it, you know, you'll get there.
1: Yeah, the core of this group's been with me for three years now, and we're getting ready to go into our postseason. We have our conference meet on Saturday, and then we go into our sectional, regional, semi-state, state series. And we didn't have the best of races this past Saturday. It was really hot. We were in Fort Wayne. We were on the semi-state course, getting a little look at that. And our times were spectacular, but we finished third. We were one point out of second place. The team, same team was was, was second to us. our third uh, the week before and beat us by seven points. So, I mean, we, we saw improvement. But when we talked this this afternoon about what we have to do this week to get ready for the conference meet, I could just see the confidence in their eyes. They know I've taken them. To that postseason before, and they've peaked well, and we're gonna do that again this year.
0: Well, you know, I wanna, I think I wanna dig in a little bit further back. So, okay. you probably learned that developing trust is the key to helping people overcome challenges. Um, one of your previous careers, I feel, could have been a great learning curve, and I wanna hear more about it, because I don't know many people who have been youth addiction counselors. Mm -hmm. so can you tell me tell us a little bit more about when when you know this played a role in your life and and why you got into this field
1: well I I got into the field because I needed a job and needed to feed my family Um, (laughs) I I I came out of graduate school I had a master's in psychology wanted to do therapy and um, the, the first position I found that was a decent fit was in an addiction center, uh, an inpatient hospitalized uh, type setting. And so I learned a lot about the, the addictive process and, and, and treatment and, and those kinds of things and, and have kept my fingers in that off and on goodness since the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, and most recently before I had this position uh, my full-time position I have now, I was um, for seven years I was a uh, addictions counselor for a residential treatment program for, for troubled adolescents. And so yeah, it's it's taken them from some of their lowest points, and and saying, you know, I've helped others through this process. I've I've helped others achieve some life goals that they wanted to get to. Uh, I know you don't know me, but but I'm going to ask you to trust me. And as that process evolves, they begin to see that some of this begins to work for them. And so to be able to translate out over to the coaching world has, has been a pretty easy jump. Um, you know, and and you know, some could say there's there's a uh, a, a good correlation between uh, you know those that are addicted to chemicals and those that are addicted to exercise and running, and some of that same obsession and mentality that goes on. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's been a it's been a good uh, uh, background to to work on the the trust part of the relationships.
0: Gosh, I kind of want to just talk about addiction for a minute. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you've hit on something that's very relevant. Um, those of us who who work out and, and use it sometimes as a coping mechanism just to manage our daily lives or, you know, once you start to feel the power of that, those endorphins and the things that mm-hmm. it can do for your body, it definitely can almost have a chemical effect. Um, I just want to hear your thoughts on that a little more.
1: Well, the, the brain science of it isn't my my uh, expertise, um, but there is a lot of science about the brain chemistry uh, with addictions and 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 exercise, that the similarities in terms of serotonin levels and endorphins. Um, one thing th- that you might find interesting is the same part of the adolescent brain that gets stimulated and and excited when they're you know using meth or or marijuana or whatever their their drug of choice is, also gets stimulated through excessive praise. So when working with the addictions kids in the residential setting, I would keep reminding the staff, we need to have like seven positives to every one negative we give these kids. We need to be finding them do doing well, do good some, at something, and then uh, praise that and pay attention to that. And I think the same is true with, with athletes. You know, you, you find what they're doing well, you pay attention to that, and they keep repeating that and getting stronger at that and better at that. Um, that. That I think is is key in terms of the brain chemistry and, and just the behavioral management of, of uh, the athletes.
0: I absolutely love this, even for parents. I
1: well, mean, yeah, especially for parents.
0: I, seven positives for every one negative. I mean, it's hard when your kid is just going. Cre- I've got a five year old and she's like, mom, mm-hmm. mom, 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 help mm-hmm. me, you know. And it's like, oh my gosh, give me a right. second here, you know. I, I've so you, yes, I've
1: seen that movie four times. So yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: you have i know you have um i think that's like a really good thing to remember mm. and it's so crazy that excessive praise stimulates that like pleasure center oh my gosh yeah it's yeah. funny yeah. when i started skirt sports my head got really big because everybody was all over how great my company was and you know eventually yeah. i came back down to earth but uh but i believe and it I absolutely do. That is such a cool thing. Um, yeah. So you were a runner growing up too, right?
1: Uh, sort of, yeah. I mean, I grew up in an athletic family. My my brothers were football players, both played uh, offensive line in college. I was the, the oddball string bean middle child. Um, took to track in high school, was a was a high jumper, hurdler, long jumper, and uh, ended up at the University of Evansville thinking I was just going to high jump. And after our first indoor meet, uh, coach pushed me over to the two mile and and eventually steeplechase outdoors and and uh, that worked out well for me found out I had a little more talent in the distance area than I did in the jumps even.
0: Um, I need to out our mutual friend Rick Stuckey (laughs) because you know so for everyone listening I often will ask like hey if you ever have any recommendations on people you think would be incredible guests send me a note and I didn't know this guy Rick now I know Rick um he (laughs) sent me a note and he said I really think you need to bring my friend Mark Michael on the show because he's just had an incredible life and um it's funny he referred to you as Marky and he also told me that you ran steeplechase in college yes
1: well we ran it together um, that that was he lived across the hall from me, and uh, he'd see this high jumper going out to run on, on, in the afternoons uh, during the fall, and you know he'd ask me what what events I run. I don't I don't run. I'm a high jumper, and he goes, no high jumpers don't run, and so he he takes full credit for one converting me to a distance runner, and two he tells my my team all the time that he taught me everything I know.
0: That is so awesome. I mean, hey, if any of us can take credit for that with somebody else in this world, do it, man. Yeah.
1: Own it. His, his other claim is that I've never beaten him in a head-to-head race, and that is true. I've never been able to beat him.
0: Well, there's still time.
1: We hope so, yeah. <laughs> um, He's injured. I might have a chance soon.
0: Excellent. Um, so with uh, your background being in athletics have you you know you've continued running and doing sports throughout your life um has it changed meaning as you've gotten older
1: oh absolutely um you know it somewhere in my mid to late 40s i realized i was not going to be a competitive runner anymore Um, uh, maybe a little bit within the age group but you know between kids going to college and and uh work and everything else that was going on, there just wasn't the try, time to train like I, I had wanted to. And so it became more of that, uh, what I say, running for health, working out for health and, and trying to, to keep out the heart disease and, and those kinds of things.
0: And, you know, I think it's also something that keeps us a little bit sane at the end of a busy day. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, as we're going through your, your life's path here, you... You, went, you, were, but you became an athlete or you were an athlete growing up. You ran through college and did other, you know, stayed really active. And then you got your master's and became a youth addiction counselor because it was the only job available. But honestly, it feels like a really good fit for you now. At what point did you become a pastor?
1: Actually, I started out as a pastor. My uh, undergrad degree was in biblical studies. And I was a youth pastor for four years before I went to get my master's. What I what I enjoyed about the youth work was that again that one-on-one time, the relationships, the small group stuff, the the family time um, with kids and their families, and, and helping them work through you know their their life problems, their crises. And I felt like I needed to get a little more training um, and experience in in the counseling area. And so my mentor basically dared me to apply to a master's program in Notre Dame since it was in our backyard. And uh, I laughed at him. I said, I don't think they want a, a farm kid from Napanee with, with commoner between his toes and a biblical studies degree in his hand walking around that campus. And lo and behold, I got accepted. So um, I cranked out a master's in 14 months in, in psychology and, uh, and and decided to stay in the mental health field. Um For for the first few years out of grad school and eventually went back to a church position and and was a senior pastor For eight years, which is something I said I would never do
0: Well, tell me more about it. Like why were you drawn to a career in the church in the first place?
1: Um, You know when I got to college I I I had grown up in a religious family and and uh, uh, Had a faith of my own and it really grew stronger while I was in college and the more I studied, the more I meditated, the more I prayed, the more I got this this feeling that I really needed to do something that was going to help people. Um, and and the church was a natural fit for me, uh, given my my background growing up. And you know, I talked to my pastor back home, and I was on a home on a break one, one time, Christmas or Thanksgiving, and and uh, he he affirmed that it sounded like that was the direction I I needed to be going talked to a few campus pastors at uh, at the University of Evansville and, and they they confirmed some of that as well so um, that's that's kind of how I got going down that path um, you know it, it was uh, uh, it wasn't just a jump into it it was it was doing some research and some exploration uh, both internally and externally
0: well and you mentioned well first of all what religion was did your family practice
1: uh, Christianity a um, uh, uh, Pretty evangelical, you know, uh, conservative Christianity.
0: Okay. And you said you had a, I kind of put it in quotes, a faith of my own. Mm-hmm. What did that mean?
1: It, it meant that, uh, uh, how do you explain this? Um, even though a lot of what I was beginning to embrace was very similar to that of my, my, my upbringing, there were aspects of my relationship with God that were now mine and not my parents'. If that makes sense.
0: Oh, that is so cool! Yes, it does. I mean, and then the approach you took—you know—you said you studied, it's sort of pragmatic, and you meditated, which is really spiritual, and you prayed. You know, it—it it, it was like a combination of many different practices that brought you to your own decision, which may, leads me to ask the question. You know, there are so many different religions out there that I Mm -hmm. think it can be confusing to a lot of people. You know, do people have to feel like they are forced into a certain type of religion or what does faith look like to different people?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, I have I have people ask me that that kind of thing and 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 you know, what kind of what is faith and, and how does faith become real? And, and I my quick and, and, and not so easy answer is I think I think God looks for us to have faith in whatever shape and form it takes and works for us to to be able to recognize that presence in our life. Um, and And if we try to use the phrase uh, I think you said corner people or push people into a certain faith, I mean you do that to me and you're going to get pushed back. And I think that's the way it is with a lot of human beings. You know, we, we have this free will. We have this, this creative, curious mind that, that wants to become aware of that spiritual life that we have. Um, but sometimes it gets so forced upon people that they, they again, they push back. They, they just, you know, I don't want any part of that. Um, and, and it's much more effective when they can discover it on their their own path.
0: I mean, you know, a lot of runners will talk about Sunday morning as, like, I'm going to church, and they head out for, like, their long run. Sure. I mean, do you, what is that, how does that feel to you when you hear that?
1: Um, I, I'm not offended by it. Um, I, you know, I understand it. Uh, when I was a pastor, my long run day was Friday because that was my day off, um, you know, it, and and so you know, even now, my Sunday mornings are, are pretty active with with my uh, my church that I belong to now, um, and and yeah, I, I I get what they're saying that they they commune, they connect, their their spirit becomes more alive when they're they're on that long run. Um, I think if that works for them, that's that's wonderful.
0: Well, and I think one of the things that you mentioned along your path was that. You decided to actually make this a career because you wanted to help others, too. And, right. you know, there's something about coming together with community that I think um, closes the circle on a faith, you know, not mm-hmm. just being out there alone.
1: Yeah. Faith faith by itself or faith out by yourself is, is, is boy, almost as lonely as not having it at all, I would imagine. Um, I'm, I'm huge on, on faith and spirituality being connected to community. Um to the point where yeah, my, my full time job now is with a nonprofit that, you know, we're trying to put faith in action by by feeding people, clothing people, helping with rent and utilities, medication assistance, and and making it a real tangible evidence of faith, not just something we speak and and, and, and espouse on, on a Sunday morning.
0: Well, so I wanted to really lay this foundation for our listeners because you've been through um an extraordinary event in a tragic and traumatic event in life yeah. and uh, the fact that you have such an incredibly solid base of faith I think is really important I want to I want to talk about your family and uh, specifically your daughter Kelsey you know sure. you, you were married pretty young right
1: uh, I was twenty-one. Yes. Oh,
0: yes, that is pretty young.
1: <laughs> I still had a year of undergraduate to go. Yeah.
0: Oh boy, and uh, and you you had four children.
1: Four daughters, beautiful, intelligent, and energetic daughters. Yes.
0: So um, it was over a decade ago now.
1: Yeah, thirteen years ago that uh, Kelsey's uh, accident happened.
0: So tell tell me, um, which, was Kelsey your youngest, oldest?
1: She, she was our second child. Um, okay. she, she was, uh, four years younger than her, her older sister, Emily. Um, and, and Kelsey was, was again, like I said, a, a bright, intelligent, um, and, and, caring child. Um, from early on, little kids just, just flocked to her and she had a way with, with connecting with them. And so as she was going through high school. Um, you know, we began to look at, help her look at careers and, and we thought something in, in, Pediatrics or elementary education, um, something like that, would be the direction she would go. Um, but then, on the second day of her junior year, she was involved in an auto accident that uh, that took her life.
0: And so, she was only sixteen years old.
1: Yes, yeah, she was just a few months shy of her seventeenth birthday.
0: Um, I I hate to take you back. You know, I know you've talked about this, but I do think it's important for people listening because some people out there, you know, are going through similar difficult times. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, we spoke a little bit earlier, and I know when the accident happened, she wasn't, she was still alive, right, at the hospital?
1: Yeah, when we arrived at the hospital, they told us that she was uh, unconscious and ventilated, And back in uh, radiology, getting a CAT scan, you know, and at that point, my, my first thought was, well, they don't give CAT scans to dead kids. So this is a good sign.
0: And um, how, you know, how did things progress from there?
1: Well, once they, they got done with the initial assessments and, and the tests, you know, eventually that evening they moved her up to critical care and we got to go back and see her, you know, five minutes every hour. And. You know, Kathy, my wife, is a nurse, and and with my background, um, we were doing everything we could think to try to get some kind of reaction out of her. You know, tickling her arms and feet, pinching her, blowing on her eyes, blowing in her ears, talking to her, praying, begging. You know, give us some kind of response here. Uh, and as the night wore on, you know, we we began to get the sense that um, that she wasn't doing well. And probably about four o'clock in the morning or so, the the physician that was taking care of her came to the, to the waiting room and, and said, you know, you need to know she's not doing well neurologically. And when we went back to the room right after he told us that, uh, the nurses just put chairs on either side of her bed. And, and so, you know, that five-minute rule is gone now. Um, you know, we could spend as much time as we, we wanted to spend. Um, so we began to have those conversations that uh, parents never think they, they're going to have or that they know they don't want to have. You know, how long do we hang on to hope? How long do we wait? And, and we decided that if, if they tell us there's no hope of recovery, that we weren't going to drag the, the process out. You know, we would, we would, um, we would let her, her uh, go off the ventilator. And then the next question we asked each other is, is if we were still okay with her being an organ donor. We knew she had signed her driver's license to be an organ donor. She had made that decision herself. And we, we just wanted to check in with each other and uh, make sure we still supported that decision as parents, and we, we both did. Um, and, and we had a conversation of, you know, we, we knew statistics, we knew trends, we knew that, that the death of a child is hard on a family and a marriage, and we committed to that no matter what, we're going to stay together, we're going to keep the family together, and if we can make any good come out of Kelsey's death, we were going to do that.
0: Wow. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> So this is, uh, this is like really hard stuff. Cause I'm a parent now and I can't imagine having that kind of conversation. Um, and I think like your Kelsey's, Kelsey's foresight to even think about organ donation. I know when you get your driver's license, kind of think about it then, but mm-hmm. that's, that's big and, and heavy stuff. And, uh, and so you decided to move forward and donate her organs. correct?:
1: Yes, we, we, uh, the next morning, when the neurosurgeon came in to do his assessment, when he first met with us, you know he said, "I'm 98 percent sure that, that she's brain dead." Um, and, and there was a, a, a lady named Tammy with him who was from the uh, Indiana donor Network. And, and he said, we want to talk about organ donation. And, and we looked at him and said, you know, anything and everything that can be used and donated, we want to make sure it gets used. Um, and uh, we, we joked with Tammy later uh, as we got to know her that we were actually the first family she worked with. And she said we were, we were the easiest sale she had um, because <laughs> we, we'd already had the conversation. We'd already in our hearts knew this is what, what we needed to do if – you know, that if, if we weren't going to be able to have our little girl um, – We're going to make sure some other parents got to keep their kids.
0: Did you, um, did you ever, so I don't really know much about how the process works, especially I imagine it has to be once a decision is made, it has to move really fast. Um, do you know how many people she helped or did you ever hear from them?
1: Yeah. Um, the, the, the recovery process itself took about 24 hours, um, you know, it was, it was early Sunday morning that they, they called us back and said, we're, we're getting ready to take Kelsey to surgery uh, to recover her organs. And, and we had family that were there waiting with us at that point. And, um, you know, we had some, some time to spend with her uh, before they took her back. Um, you know, some of the poignant moments there is um, Kathy crawling up into the bed to hold her little girl one more time. And, uh um, and then us singing, you know, Amazing Grace, um, as, as, as we're, 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 we're singing her to heaven. Um, from there, about a month after the uh, the death and, and the, the recovery of the organs, we got a letter that outlined in generalities where the organs went. Uh, her heart was in such a condition, though, from the accidents and bruising that that they weren't able to use that, but they did recover her valves and, and use those in a transplant, uh, a valve transplant. But you know, her lungs went to a, a college student in Ohio. Uh, her right kidney and pancreas went to a security guard in his late 30s near Indianapolis. Uh, her her liver went to a 15 year old in Southern Indiana who, get this, ran track, liked running, oh uh, did gymnastics. Wow. Uh, and then her left kidney went to a, uh, a two and a half year old girl with multiple disabilities, um, uh, a little girl named Audrey that we've had the privilege to meet uh, Audrey and her family through um, through the through the, uh, the Indiana Donor Network.
0: Wow! So she's about sixteen now.
1: Yeah, she's she just she's fifteen and a half. They just celebrated their thirteen years of the transplant. Um,
0: oh, wow! And,
1: uh, and we we keep communication with them, so we've been able to follow her progress.
0: You know, okay, sorry, hold on a minute. That's all right. Um, does knowing that you were able to help save other people's lives and make this kind of impacted that, I don't know, did that help get you through the the grieving process at all?
1: Yeah, to a certain extent, um, especially once we begin to see some of that tangible evidence uh, in 2006, we got to go to the transplant games with the team from Indiana as a donor family. And, and for our younger daughters, for Maddie and McKenna, they were like 13 and, and 9 at the time, 13 or 14 and 11. And, and for them to see people who were athletes playing basketball, volleyball, running track, bowling, cycling um, for a week in Louisville – it helped them realize that 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 Kelsey's death wasn't just a waste that that she did help save people even though we hadn't met any of them yet Uh, it was that year 2006 we began to have some direct contact with Audrey and her family through all the the paperwork and legalities that we had to do Uh, and then in 2007 we met them we we met them for the first time and um, uh, and that was wonderful Uh, you know Audrey had multiple disabilities she 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 was so toxic When we got the first letter from her mother, Lisa, she was so toxic because her kidneys hadn't developed that that when she was fussy, you go to comfort a two-year-old who's crying and it hurt her even more to be touched. And when she came out of surgery, she was laughing and and cuddling and giggling and smiling and that they had a little girl that they could hold again.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: Yeah. And, And when we met her in 2007, she had just started school at the Indiana School for the Blind. And at the end of the school year, 2010, I got an email from Lisa that said, hey, we had our evaluation, annual evaluation today, and, and they called us in and said, we've got good news, we've got bad news. Um, the bad news is Audrey can't come back next fall. The good news is her eyesight has improved so much she no longer qualifies for the school oh,
0: program. That is incredible.
1: And they, they had a follow-up appointment, you know, one of the regular checkups at Riley Children's Hospital shortly after that, and they, they shared this news and this evaluation with the doctors, and the doctor said, look... We're gonna admit that we're stupid and she's smart. You know, we keep telling you she's not gonna reach this milestone or ever do this and all she does is prove us wrong. And and they attributed the, the eyes healing and, and developing to the kidney being able to flush the toxins and get good nutrients and and uh and fluid to, to the eyes. And so, you know, those are those are the things where you say, Yeah, do I want my daughter back? Absolutely. But my goodness, look what her gift of life has done for others.
0: You know, I think, um, when you go back to, you mentioned that you knew that the stats on divorce or, you know, families breaking up after times of great loss are pretty high and you made the commitment that you were going to work through it all together. I mean, was that commitment tested at times throughout the process?
1: Was it difficult? Is that what you asked? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, the, I, don't, I don't know that the commitment was ever tested, but boy, you know, our patience and our tolerance for each other at times. Um, yeah, grief grief is a very selfish process, uh, is what I've learned. You, you've got to do some things for yourself that sometimes um, put other people off um, because you got to go do some things for yourself, by yourself, or you're not sometimes available when they. They need you, or they think they need you, and, and and the reverse is true. There's there's times where I thought I, you know, I need this out of you, Kathy, and she's not available because she's hurting so bad. Um, but somehow through the grace of God, we got through it. We've we've stayed together for for another 13 years, and you know, um, high school sweethearts are making it still.
0: Well, and it's you know it's your marriage, but then it's also your relationship. You know, you're you're together your relationships with your three other daughters and individually Mm -hmm. your relationships with them. And did you, was there anything, any kind of advice you could give to people who are going through pain that might help them find purpose through their pain?
1: For me, um, I'll say knowing I still had to be dead to three others gave me some reason to get out of bed in the morning. Um, Gave me some reason to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Um, did I do it perfectly? I, I know I didn't. Um, you know, there were times that, that I still wasn't the, 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 best father I could have been, but today my relationship with all three daughters is pretty good. You know, t- two of them are married and in graduate school. Uh, the youngest is getting ready to graduate with her, her bachelor's, uh, in, in elementary education, uh, next spring. Um, the, they've come through it well as well. You know, are there emotional scars? Absolutely. I mean, we all we all still have those. Um, but I think Kathy puts it best that, you know, the pain never goes away, but it softens. Um, the edges aren't as sharp as they once were.
0: Is there, like, I know it's so different for everybody, but is there any timeline, like, just to give people hope, you know? Could you say, oh, in two years, in a year, in six months, like, You'll feel better, I mean is there any kind of i don't know
1: i i you know I can't give you hard and fast time mean what i what I can describe for me is a fog kept lifting um and and again, there's still a lot of grief and pain uh obviously, but I can talk about her, I can talk about the memories, um I can do it with a smile on my face, remembering the good times that that I had with her um yep. You know, she was, a, she was our cross-country manager, um, my first round of coaching. And so she and I spent a lot of time together um, on the course, on buses, and in, in the car, driving home for meets. Uh, and, and those are the things I, I focus on more now than than the accident and the death.
0: Yeah, because you had that special time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, do you recommend that people go to therapy or talk to people? Like, what would you say is... Maybe the most important thing to do when you're faced with something very tough like this.
1: Well, as as a a, a guy who's been a therapist, absolutely therapy helps. Um, I, I have well the same mentor that dared me to go to Notre Dame. Um, you know, I spent a, a few few sessions with him afterwards, um, and and uh, more than a few, I should say. Um, and and friends, oh my goodness, my my friends that would just let me either call them up or pop into their office or, or, or say, I need to go out and have wings and burgers or whatever. And, and just talk, uh, you know, and I would, I would bend their ear beyond belief. Um, one friend, especially, I could walk in his office early in the morning, sit down, unload for 15 or 20 minutes. He'd look at me and say, you done now? I'd say, yeah. He goes, all right, go to work. Um, uh, invaluable, you know, and, and we've talked about Ricky. Oh my goodness, Ricky. Uh, you know, <laughs> Good thing he lives on the west coast because when I was up at two in the morning, couldn't sleep, I could still call him. Um, matter of fact, when I, I called him that Saturday morning after the accident to tell him that uh, that Kelsey was brain dead, um, first words out of his mouth is Rachel and I will be there tomorrow, and they they dropped everything and flew and uh, uh, from Portland to, to Chicago, drove down, and Monday morning there's a knock on my back door and it's Ricky. And he's saying, uh, get your shoes on. We're going running. Yeah.
0: So he got your body moving right away. So there's number one coping mechanism coming right in. Yep. Wow. I mean, but also it's a testament to being the kind of person you are, which is someone who people feel comfortable being open with, Mm -hmm. you know? And obviously you have you know, you emanate that. And so when you're hurting, people want to help you. And I think that's a really powerful thing to remind people to not shut themselves off because we all have times when we need help too.
1: Yeah. And, and it was difficult to accept. Um, I remember hugging one of my best friends the night, that night in the hospital and uh, and saying to him, I don't know what to do. You know, they're like 70, 75 people up at the hospital just wanting to be with us and help us. And I said, I don't know how to accept this kind of help and care. I'm the one who gives it. And and he, and again, you know, my friend Jay that that I talked about, whose office I go to, they were like, would you just shut up and accept it? You know, you've done so much for the community and others. It's It's your time to accept it.
0: Did that have like a physical effect on you? Was it like... Oh, that's what that means, or how you know how do you just accept it?
1: Wow, I don't know so much physical as emotional and spiritual for me i you know i had to, I had to open up and and let others get in in ways I normally didn't um because I was used to to uh being the one listening and 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 being allowed into their world and into their pain and and uh, you know, my pain was so private that, that at times I didn't want anybody to know, and and um, and so intense I didn't wanna I didn't want anybody else to have to experience that.
0: Wow, this is you know, first of all, I had a cold going into this interview, <laughs> <So> <laughs> and I'm now
1: laughing. I'm
0: I'm trying to like quietly blow my nose in the corner because it's it's very emotional, you yeah. know to to imagine and to dig and in, tap into our own experiences when we've come close to, you know, our own, I guess, equivalent of what you've, you've gone through. Mm-hmm. And it's some really great advice, you know, and you can only give it when you've come out the other side. So thank you so much for sharing. I know um, you're still doing incredible things to spread awareness for organ donation. Maybe share some of those things with us.
1: Yeah, we we, uh, we got a call in the summer of 2014 that Kelsey had been selected to be the Florograph from Indiana on the uh, Donate Life load at the Tournament of Roses parade for January 1st, 2015. So Kathy and I got to go out to Pasadena and be a part of all the festivities and activities out there. It was kind of funny. you know. We, we went to the Rose Bowl game and it was the first year of the national championship playoff deal, and it's Oregon and Florida State. And Ricky had sent us Oregon T-shirts, and and we're we're sitting in the Rose Bowl at this this huge football game, looking at each other, going, you know, th- this is kind of boring, um, this is anticlimactic with with what we'd been through that week. Um, but we go out. I go out maybe half a dozen times a year for for the Indiana Donor Network and. And tell the story from the, the donor family perspective. You know, usually we hear stories of the recipients and how their lives were saved and how their lives have become better and how grateful their families are. And, and our story really involves these two little girls that never met but are connected eternally. And, and seeing that growth and progress in Audrey and, and how that's helped us realize what a gift Kelsey gave others.
0: Oh, absolutely. And you know in an, in an article I read that I will post in our show notes, it did say that she potentially helped upwards of 50 people.
1: Yeah, when you, when you do a total uh, organ and tissue donation, um 50 to 70 people can be helped. Everything from corneas to skin for skin grafts for burn victims, um femurs for bone paste tendons for orthopedic surgeries. Uh, it's just unbelievable how much of the body can be, can I use the word recycled? Um, <laughs> yes, that, and, and, that's,
0: yeah, that actually, I mean, it makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and so we never got a lot of detail about the, the tissue donation. We, we heard a little bit like, you know, the corneas went to two different people and gave them sight back. Um, but yeah, we know the organs extended some people's lives.
0: So there's a really cool event coming up in three locations and virtually.
1: Yes. <laughs> Let's I'm talk about
0: the thankful for.
1: I'm thankful for, uh, it's F O U R. I, I had a printer with t-shirts one time that kept wanting to make it F O R.
0: Well, um, of course. <laughs> yeah.
1: the, the, the four, the four comes in and it's a four mile racer walk, a runner walk that we do. Uh, and it actually started before Kelsey died. Um, you know, it, there was a group of us that used to go up to Niles, Michigan and run a 10K, 5K up there. We'd pay the same $18, get the same T-shirt, run the same route, hustle back to get to Aunt Mary's in time for dinner. And one year, 2001, I said, hey, let's let's stop being crazy. Just, let, let's meet at the Methodist Church in Wakarusa. We'll run the mile square, the four miles around um, one corner of the town, if you will, out in the country a little bit. You know, everybody brings some canned goods. We'll take them to the food pantry. That's your entry fee. I'll, I'll have the cross country kids take them down as a, a service project. And so, I think it was twenty three of us that first year. You know, we stood in a circle, held hands. Everybody said one thing they were thankful for. We took off. Um, the pastor uh, got out a clipboard and stopwatch, wrote everybody's name and time down. So I, as a joke, I sent it to the to the one of the local papers as the results of the first annual "I'm thankful for" road run, and they published it. So we did it again in 2003, 2002, 2003, and we got up to maybe 40 people. And um, the morning after Kelsey's funeral, uh, a couple of friends, Jack and Dan, had gotten a hold of us right after the funeral and said, hey, we know tomorrow's going to be rough. Would you guys mind if we run with you in the morning, with you and Kathy? You know, and I said, yeah, that'd be great. They go, yeah, we don't want to meet at 530 like you guys usually run. Let's, let's say 630 at the middle school. So Kathy, and I roll in at 6.30 in the parking lot, and there are 80 people waiting to run with us, uh, including five cross-country teams, five of the local cross-country teams. And a few of my runners stuck around after the funeral to do this too. And um, we ran about three miles together as a group, and and we got done, and and Jack and Dan said, you know, Mark's done this goofy little run on Thanksgiving morning. Kelsey's birthday was in November. We want to make it a big deal and raise some money for scholarships in her memory. And so they told me to order 200 T-shirts. And I said, you're crazy. We're not going to get 200 people to show up. You know, we have 1,700 people in our town. Um, we're not going to have, have 200 people on Thanksgiving morning. And we ended up with 328 uh, <laughs> that, that year. So I had to had, order 100, 150 T-shirts.
0: Yeah, um, you had 128 pissed off people who didn't get their T-shirt, but they were I, happy I, to I be there. A,
1: I got them for them later. I, I delivered them all, mailed them. They made sure everybody got a T-shirt. So, <laughs> So we do this. We do this every Thanksgiving. It's, there's a four mile runner walk. There's a two mile runner walk, and and one of those runners who had stayed back, Aaron Hoover, now lives in Golden, Colorado, and uh, he just had twin daughters. He's he's a new papa, um, and and proud and, and happy with with his girls. And uh, he used to drive back uh, from Colorado every Thanksgiving. He, he'd like drive straight through, sleep a little bit in Illinois, and come and run in the morning, and then. You know, by Sunday he'd be back in Colorado. So a few years ago, he said, "He says, Coach, I'm really getting tired of making the drive. Um, how about if I put on a race out here, and 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 we'll send you money for the scholarship fund back back there?" So so Aaron has uh, has the the Colorado version of I'm thankful for. One of Kelsey's friends uh, married a military guy, and they ended up stationed in Hawaii. So they started a version in Hawaii, and we've got that still going, even though they're back in the uh, in Ohio now. And then we do a virtual one. We've had people in San Diego, Washington D.C., uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. My friend Canada Rick always runs up there, and and so it's it's become a thing where we have like a thousand participants now um, in this in this thing. And uh, in thirteen years, we've given out over eighty thousand dollars in scholarships to to students from our high school, um, so that they can pursue their dreams.
0: Oh, it's so- incredible.
1: Kelsey's we, favorite movie was Wizard of Oz And so we call our big scholarship The Dreams Come True Scholarship Because somewhere over the rainbow
0: Oh, I absolutely love that Oh, that's great Okay, well, everybody listening If you're in Colorado, let's get out to Golden Let's do it on Thanksgiving morning I mean, we got to burn some calories anyway To eat yeah, our feast
1: Absolutely, Aaron's got to get out of the house With those babies, too You know, He's, <laughs> he's going to need something to keep him busy
0: Yeah, Aaron, look out Here we come you know we're winding down here, and this has been quite a quite a journey running the world tonight with you. Um, I want to give people a few nuggets before we we sign off. So okay. just a few kind of bigger picture questions. Uh, you're a pretty special person, Mark. This is uh, this you. has been really really fun. All right let's let's tell everyone what's one habit or routine that you do religiously.
1: One have a routine I do religiously I would say pray uh, prayer meditation that's, that's part of my morning routine I, I get up I put the coffee on and, and I spend some time alone uh, with God with myself with not just figuring out what my day is going to be like but kind of where am I at in life and, and, and what do I need to be working on on myself
0: I like that. It's like you're setting the foundation each day, and it's with you time. And you know, it goes back even to what you said about grief, which is a very selfish process. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't really be there for others. So, I think that's uh, that's really really cool and something I need to aspire to. Um, all right, next one. Are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, what's one word that summarizes where you are right now in your life?
1: Wow, one word, huh? Uh first one popped in my head was content.
0: Wow. Awesome. That means a lot.
1: Yeah. I you know, I I've got a good life right now.
0: Yep. And you appreciate it, and that's the that's key. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we're we're running down on uh, 50 minutes, so we're going to wrap it here with our final question that I ask every guest that comes on the show. Okay. And I know you've listened to a few of these podcasts, uh, so you probably know what's I coming. I have been
1: waiting for this one for months. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, if you could give our li- our listeners one final piece of advice, one nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be?
1: That would be... to. Find a way to make somebody else better. Give of yourself to help somebody else make, be, become a better version of themselves.
0: I love that. And you've done that your entire life <laughs> through all your careers. Yeah. yeah plural. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that is such great advice.
1: Maybe someday I'll decide what I want to be when I grow up.
0: Good. Let's uh, Let's just keep pushing the path. In the meantime, well, Mark, thank you so much for everything tonight and for for sharing all this tough stuff. I know it's hard, and, and I really believe it will help some people who are listening out there. So thank you. Thanks for everything you do in this world to make it a better place. You are definitely doing that.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Hey there, everyone. Really great, deep, sometimes heavy, but ultimately uplifting episode with Mark. When I asked him the question about what word summarizes where he is right now in his life, he said, content. I feel that there is so much power in this, wor- in this word, especially considering where he's been. You know, the day after the interview, Mark sent me a verse from Bible Gateway. This is a verse that his church's youth director used with the kids that morning. <laughs> it's interesting, the timing. It's from Matthew 5.5, 5, and it says, You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. It's a pretty good one, huh? In the end, Mark's final nugget best sums up the message from this entire episode, that no matter what you're dealing with or going through, at the end of the day, if you can find a way to make somebody else better, that's what you need to be doing. Give of yourself to help somebody else become a better version of themselves. So hold on to that thought, folks. Continue to push yourself to grow, to open your mind and heart, Sometimes you can help others around you the most by simply being the best version of yourself and radiating all the positivity that happens when you are. All right, everyone, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout and we'll see you next week.